this morning's message will be somewhat of a what I'd call a running commentary, just following the Lord as He's moving towards Jerusalem uh, for the ultimate destination of the cross. Now, we know that He spent much time up in Galilee in that area and couple of scriptures there says say that he went around to various towns and villages in that area uh, preaching and teaching uh, on the kingdom of God now things have changed now he's moving towards Jerusalem and the message changed and it was not that he abandoned the message of the kingdom but now he's focusing on discipleship Huge crowds are, are following him, traveling along, along with his little band of disciples. <clears throat> there was Pharisees in, involved, you know, in, in the group, uh, and, and uh, all of them, you know, interested in seeing, you know, the kinds of things that the Lord had been doing in Galilee, miracles of all kinds. And those miracles that he was doing in all those various villages and towns was to validate who he was and his message. He was the Messiah and the kingdom of God had drawn near, as Matthew tells us. The kingdom of the heavens had drawn near. So this, this kingdom that was being, being offered to Israel was really the focus of his message, but now that he's on his way to Jerusalem, he's focusing on the idea of discipleship, what it means to have entrance into that kingdom. So in chapter 13, you know, and I, it was kind of, you know, you just jump in somewhere and that's, that's what I'm doing today. I'm, there's, I could have, it's hard not to go back all the way to the beginning so that you kind of get the flow and catch the whole thing, but we're gonna jump in at verse 22 and more or less walk our way through this journey that he's on. Now, excuse me, in verse 22, it tells us there that he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And that was an interesting question that was on the heart of this, this one. Will it be few? Or will there be a great, you know, great multitude? And of course, the word saved there, in this context, had to do with entrance into the kingdom. Matter of fact, that was the Jewish concept, the Jewish mindset of what salvation was. If a person was saved, that meant they were going to be entering into Messiah's kingdom. So, his, this is his question. And of course, the Lord you know, gives, a, gives an answer to this. He, he says, um, that we should strive to enter through the narrow door, or King James says straight gate. But the idea here is, is of a door because it's the, you're, it, well, we'll see from the context here uh, concerning entering and, and participating in the millennial banquet, the millennial feast. And so he says there, <coughs> strive, struggle, just like those uh, athletes, the wrestlers did in the Grecian games, when they worked very, very hard 
to overcome their opponent. And he's using the same kind of word here for us. This is what it takes, in other words. It's not an easy road. It's not a matter of just saying we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then we sit back and take it easy and just wait for that day to come. But rather, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter. Now that's, that's interesting. Many will seek to enter and will not be able. Why? Well, for various reasons. One is they're seeking to get in on their own terms, not on the terms that the Lord has established for us here. Others, as we'll find out later, they enter into the matter of discipleship and then they give up and quit. They turn back. The struggle's too hard. So he tells them then in verse 25, once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, it's not going to stay open forever. There's coming a day when the door will be shut. And he says, and you begin to stand outside, that is, you, you seekers, and you knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. And then he's going to answer you, I do not know where you're from. You know, when you're having a, a feast, a banquet, and the master of the house says it's time for the feast to begin, he goes and closes the door. And these that were too late, he's not going to allow them to enter in. I don't know where you come from, he says. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Lord, we know you. I mean, we, we ate with you. And we, we heard you teaching in, in the streets of our cities and our towns. Why can't we come in? And he says, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. All right. He quotes from Psalm 6, 8. That verse is um, one in which the Lord, well, I won't say... <laughs> Well, let me just say, when, when New Testament people, whether it's the apostles or the Lord, they quote something from the Old Testament, you, you just never know how to take it because sometimes they just pull a verse out. Sometimes they reformat it to something that you don't expect. He's applying it here to those who were seeking to enter his kingdom, but they arrived too late. And the door was shut. And so he tells them, depart from me, you workers of evil or iniquity. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, it's interesting too. If you look up all the uses or the phrases, weeping and gnashing of teeth, all of them in the Gospels have to do with failure to enter into the kingdom. The weeping and gnashing of teeth. All of them. Then he says, when you see, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, unable to enter. Or 
uh, that word cast out, it's translated cast forth uh, in, in a couple other places. Uh, so they are just thrust out, unable to enter. They weren't going to make it. They didn't make the standard. And people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. <laughs> in other words, in this great feast. Some think that there's going to be just a feast. Others that the whole millennial kingdom, the whole thousand years is uh, viewed and pictured as, as one giant feast. It's going to be a happy, glorious time. As a matter of fact, as we mentioned, the, all of these matters of when he was passing through the villages of Galilee and it was healing and ministering to those who were sick, the lame, and so on. All of these are pictures of what millennial, the millennial reign will be like. There will be no more disease there, no more heart trouble, no more surgeries. It's all done. It will be a time of, of ultimate bliss, and that's what this banquet represents. Then he says there's going to be people coming from all over the place, from the four corners of the earth, Gentiles, that are going to be participants in the kingdom, and yet you are going to find yourselves cast out. And so consequently, he says, some are last who will be first. That is to say, in the Jewish mindset, Gentiles, who they would consider last, are actually going to be end up being first. And you, Jews, who thought you would be first, because that's the way you viewed your nation, because you were the physical descendants of Abraham, you're going to end up being last. And he doesn't say it here, but later on he'll say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, he moves on. Verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Go, oh, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. And he goes on to re reply that uh, what to go and tell that fox, Herod, uh, and so on. And you come down to chapter 14. <coughs> and he says there one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, and there was a man there who had dropsy. <laughs> and it says they were watching him very carefully. They wanted to see what he was going to do. You get the idea that it was a setup, that these Pharisees had placed that man with the dropsy there. Because that wasn't the normal thing, you know. As a matter of fact, later on he talks about, you know, you have a banquet, and, you know, and you invite your friends, your relatives, your brothers and sisters. You invite uh, the rich neighbors and so on. And then Jesus admonished them about inviting in the poor and the lame and, and uh, the, the, those who could not repay. Well, this is one of those guys. So what was he doing here? Well, it looks like a setup. They're watching the Lord to see what he would do. And he responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He read their minds. He knew what was going on, what, what they were doing. And they remained silent, and so he took him, and he healed him, and he sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And of course the answer was, well, we all would. Well then, if that's the case, then 
Isn't this person here more valuable than your ox? If you'd pull him out, then why can't I heal him on a Sabbath? And of course, the Sabbath being the seventh day, again, was a picture of the millennial reign and a picture of the healing that would occur when the Lord Jesus came. They were, everyone would be healed who had diseases, who were lame and sick, and who had all kinds of gadgets in their body because of what doctors have done to them here on earth. Uh, <laughs> I'll be glad to get rid of some of these things one day, and it's going to happen. So, he just, he's, you know, he's continuing all this time now. He's, he's walking. He's moving. He's making his way to Jerusalem. And the crowds are following. And so the next thing that happens is this parable about a wedding feast. Again, and you'll see that this enters prominent into what the Lord's teaching them. So he told a parable to those who were invited. That is, he told a parable about a wedding feast to those who were invited to the wedding feast. And he says, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you were invited to someone to a wedding feast, don't go sit down in the place of honor. And we, I think we know this story, this parable. You don't take the, the, you know, the high places of honor. You go back and you, you take the low place, the lowest place. So that if the master of the house or the master of the wedding feast comes and there's a place available for you and he wants to move you up, then you'll have honor before everyone there. But if you're asked to move down, then it's going to be a time of shame because I got somebody more important I want to put in your seat. So you have to you have to take a lesser seat. So he's talking about humility about a willingness to be last, a willingness to be humble uh, in the presence of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I used to be like to be first when we were, when we, when we had a, uh, when we used to have a, uh, you know, potluck supper for dinner. Everybody would kind of stand back like weary, you know, like humble like, not me, I'll take off, I'll lead the way. But he says if he humbles himself, he will be exalted. Yes, there's coming a day in Christ's kingdom when some will be exalted above others. And the way to have that happen is to practice humility. And one of the ways you practice humility is by you know, taking the lesser seat at a wedding banquet. And the application, of course, is, is to take the lower place, the more humble place, in whatever social situation you find yourself in as a follower of Christ, as a disciple. That's the instructions he's giving them. And then he goes on in verse 12 concerning this banquet again. And he said also to the man who had invited him, by the way, when you give a dinner, he says, don't invite your friends and your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. How many times does that happen to us? 
we, we invite somebody over, then whoever that is, they think, well, they had us over for now, we need to have them over. And you get repaid that way. But how many of us have done what he says here? When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and so on. And he says, you will be blessed because they cannot repay. That's a tall order for some. You know, our, I mean, in the United States, here, it's just, you know, and, and it's different. You know, on a mission field, it's a lot different because you, depending on where you are, you see a lot of poor around you all the time. I mean, and, and you find it easy in certain, certain respects to minister to the poor because you feel like that's what God sent you there to do. But how many of us think that way here? Is it really any different? I don't think so. Not what, according to what Jesus is saying here. And so it, it'll, you know, it, it'll really take some effort. It'll take some real effort and planning to decide I'm going to have a meal in my house and I'm going to invite somebody who is so poor they cannot repay me. I'm just going to do it out of the generosity of my heart because I want to serve the Lord this way. And we question ourselves oftentimes, I know, concerning people who, who come by the church here and they're wanting help. And Ken and I were discussing this the other day about how do you know? How do you know whether you should really help this person? Are they here just looking for a handout? Or is this really a person who has a genuine need over here? And if that's the case, how do you discern? How do you know? You know, Brother Bear is here this morning. He's the director of a rescue mission for those who are I call them, can I call them down and out in need? Isn't that so easy? I just, I, I hate it. Oh, I just, I hate it. But I just think, okay. See that guy sitting right there? That redhead guy there? You go talk to him right there because he works at the mission there. And they're out of your hair. You don't have to deal with it. There's a certain part of me that likes that. There's another part of me that despises it. Because I wish that I had the ability to know and discern who really needs the help so that I could actually go and do it. That's, that's the hard part. The reason I want to do it is because I want to do what the Lord said here. I want to help some because you know what he says? You know that's a righteous act, by the way, when you do that? That is an act of righteousness because he goes on to tell us, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just or the resurrection of the righteous. So to get repaid at the resurrection of righteous means you did a righteous deed. And to do a righteous deed meant to minister to the poor the lame, the crippled, the blind, those who cannot help themselves and they cannot repay you and they cannot repay me. 
Now we have a young, I call him a young man. He's in his late 40s. He comes by the church here regularly and uh, he's one that several of us have kind of latched on to. He's a very humble fella. Lives in what we would call projects downtown. Um, that I, I, I find to be a, a genuine person who really has some genuine needs. And I take great joy in being able to help him. Most of the time it's, you know, we need to go by and buy some groceries or, you know, stop by Captain D's on the way home. We take him back to his, uh, uh, I don't know if you call it an apartment or I guess it'd be an apartment since it's in some Section A housing. Uh, if you know what that's all about, but uh, you know, I, that that gives me great joy. But I wish there were more like that. I wish there were more that our church could minister to and set aside funds for as a collective body to help people like that. That's just put you on notice that I will be talking to you about that later. And so then in verse, uh, what is that? I can't see it. Verse 15, he says, When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In other words, everybody that gets to participate in that banquet is going to be blessed. Well, yeah, that's, that's so. But he said to him, uh, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And we know the story there. They all begin to make excuses. I've got to go field, a field I need to go see and a new ox I just bought. I need to go try them out. And the other one said, oh, I just got married. I need to go home and, and take care of my new wife, uh, my new bride here. And uh, <coughs> we, we just, we can't come. And that's a sorry excuse. When the Lord Jesus has called us to participate in his wedding banquet to participate in his kingdom that's our calling and if we don't measure up to the calling then we're going to find ourselves like these people here that Jesus talks about who are thrown out the door's been shut so Tells us there, then the master of the house got angry. And he told his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So he did it, but it wasn't, doesn't seem at least on the front end like the right motive, but he ended up doing that because he had a banquet. And he wanted to make sure that all, you know, it was filled with guests. And that's what the Lord Jesus wants. He wants his banquet this great feast that will be experienced in, in his kingdom to be full. And he says, Sir, Lord, what you commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Will you go out then to the highways and, and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled? I think the implication there probably um, it would be the highways and the hedges and the lanes would be 
the Gentiles, another illustration of those who would be participating in the Lord's millennial banquet. And I tell you, none of those men, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. If we don't respond to his call to be a disciple, and that gets pretty tough, hard. It's demanding to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's what a lot of this is all about here. As a matter of fact, in verse 25, you know, he gets down to this matter about the cost of discipleship. And he, <clears throat> he says there are great crowds accompanied him. And he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he says, cannot be my disciple. I think the whole issue here we see in this passage uh, is one of priority. Jesus is number one under every single circumstance. There is no question, no issue, no excuse that will suffice to put in place of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that includes your parents. That includes your wife. Matter of fact, it includes me. He says, your life also. Then he says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, again, cannot be my disciple. In Matthew 16, Jesus told the disciples there, he said, uh, if anyone will take up his own cross and follow me, bear his own cross that's something that all of us have to do and if you're not following christ if you're not laboring or striving as a disciple then there's nothing to bear there's nothing to strive for there's nothing there's no burden about carrying a cross some like to think that this image here you know fits what the romans would do because when they crucified someone, um, they had to carry their own cross. A lot of them were not able to make it all the way, so they didn't have to carry it the whole distance. But they had to carry their own cross. That was, that was a part of the public humiliation uh, that they had to undergo as they were taken to be crucified. And of course, the ultimate then was hanging on that cross. This last illustration is interesting. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, well, let's read the next one too because that that one has to do with building now this has the next one has to do with battle building and battling uh, a king going out to encounter another king in war will he sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 
to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And he says, and if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In other words, he said, before I ever go out there, I'm going to surrender right now. I'm not going to take my 10 up against his 20. I'm not a fool. The point of it all is then, is that, well, I want us to read then also in that last verse, verse 33, he says, so therefore, now I know the King James says likewise, and I think that's unfortunate because it's like, it's like they're wanting you to make a comparison between the builder and the warrior king and the cost of discipleship and following Jesus. But he's, notice he goes on to say, so therefore, in other words, in view of this, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In other words, the builder here is the Lord Jesus. The warrior king here is the Lord Jesus. And if you don't renounce all that you have in order to follow him in this matter of building and battling, whatever it is, cannot be my disciple. Three times he tells us, if you're not willing, you cannot be my disciple. And so, really, the issue comes down to, have I been willing to surrender myself? Have I been willing to humble myself? Have I been willing at some point to say, Lord, I do want to follow you and I do want to be your disciple. Well, he tells him in that last verse, verse 34, uh, which in, in, in some manner seemed to me it was an unusual place to put something like this. But the point of it all was, is he says, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now let's reread that. Being a disciple is good. But if the disciple has lost his taste, because of failure somewhere along the way, then how shall his saltiness be restored? And of course, the implication is it can't. Once you've turned back. Matter of fact, if we went back to chapter 9, verse 62, you remember what Jesus said there? Any man who have his put his hand to the what? Yeah, the plow. And looks back or turns back, not fit for the kingdom of God. So yes, surrendering, giving yourself over to the Lord to be a disciple as a momentous decision and one that we better be prepared to follow all the way through to the end. It's not a part-time job. It's not one of those where, well, you know, I know it's Sunday, I know I should be in church, but, and then think that there's something else that could be more important that will get in the way. There is nothing. It's either he is Lord or he's not Lord. To be Lord meant he was number one. That's why the, the, the uh, 
early believers, when they said, Lord Jesus Christ, that was right directly a smack in the face to Caesar. Because <laughs> they, they were admitting, well, he's not Lord. He's not number one. Jesus is. And so he says that it's of no use, this, this salt that has lost its saltiness, this disciple who's lost his saltiness. Now, regarding the salt, he says it's neither good for the soil or for the manure pile. Now, if any of you grown up on a farm much, like Janet and I did, we know a little bit about manure piles. Did you catch what's going on here? The manure pile is more valuable than a disciple who turns back. That's what he's telling us here. It is thrown away. The salt's thrown away. You don't even put it on the manure pile. You toss it out. And that's the same thing he says about a disciple. You're not even good for the dunghill. And you're going to be removed because the dunghill is more valuable than you are. And of course, my thoughts always go back to Hannah and her prayer. When she says, Lord, you know, you know how to take somebody at the bottom of the dunghill and raise them up to the top. I like that. But that's what humility and discipleship is all about. The Lord takes such delight, such joy in raising up the lowly and the humble and the meek. And he ends that section, as we said earlier, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Better take note of that. Acknowledge what I, what I say. And, and he isn't done yet. We just don't have time to continue on. Because he's still on his journey to Jerusalem. And he's still teaching them about discipleship. He's still teaching them about what it means to follow him. And of course, following him in this context meant he was going all the way to the cross. To execution. You know something else here? I noticed that um, there were these huge crowds that were following Jesus all the way down to Jerusalem. But you know when it came time for crucifixion? When Jesus was in the garden? How many were there with him then? Zero. Even his own disciples had left him. He was all by himself. Discipleship can be a very lonely thing. It's a little different than, you know, going around and shaking hands and hugging each other and, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to put that down. I think it's great. I love it. It's one of my favorite times of worship here is uh, uh, the, the care and the love that God has allowed us to be blessed with in this congregation. But there's nothing, nothing that can compare to what the Lord is pleased to do with the meek and the lowly, the humble, and raising them up and exalting.
exalting them to positions of honor, which I have no idea what all that includes, but I do know it includes sharing in his coming rule in various ways, whether it's sitting on a throne, whether he says it's ruling you know, five cities, ten cities, an, a, a whole nation, whether you're part of some national administration, whether you're you know down the pecking order, wherever you find yourself, you're going to be elated. You're going to be filled with joy because it's far better than the alternative that Jesus sets forth for those who don't willingly follow him, for those who don't heed the call. So how do we do that? What all does that entail? Well, you know, <clears throat> the scriptures tell us, you know, Jesus, I speak to Jesus, Paul, um, in one of my favorite passages in Galatians chapter 5, he tells us what not to do if you follow the dictates of the flesh. But then, you know, ending on the positive note, he says, uh, you know, the things of the Spirit that will result in this exaltation means doing this. So if you're going to be a disciple, here's what we should be practicing doing. And oh, oh boy. You know, I wish maybe you understood how much of these messages that I get together is all about preaching back to me. Because I, I need this so much, so bad. But he says, here's the things. The fruit of the Spirit is love. We've already mentioned that one. We've got, you know, I won't say we got it down pat, but we're well on the road here. But he goes on to say then, joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, he says, there is no law. That is, there's, there, there's no, Jesus doesn't have anything against any of these things. These are all on the positive side. These are the kinds of things that he's looking for. To be a, a meek person, a gentle person. What do I need that? A kind of person. This is what we need to practice if we want his approval. Let's pray. Father, we know that some of these things are hard to hear. We know the crowds as they were moving to Jerusalem with, with Jesus, it was, it was hard for them. They weren't used to somebody preaching to them like that. But yet it was those, those kinds of things that would produce righteousness. And it's those kinds of things that would be rewarded at the resurrection of the righteous. So I pray, Father, that we would set our hearts upon our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would have the place of preeminence and prominence in our daily activities, that we would honor him by being willing to follow him no matter where the path leads, because we know in the end it will be resulting in glory and honor in that most wonderful banquet that you have prepared for us. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.